Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today we're delighted to be joined by James Coney, money editor at The Times and The Sunday Times. James, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, James. Great to have you with us. So money editor, can you just tell us what that really means? What does your role entail? So my primary job is to basically decide what goes into the money sections of The Times and The Sunday Times. Our main money section comes out on a Saturday in The Times and a Sunday, obviously, in The Sunday Times. And it's basically running a team of reporters and helping us to focus on the issues that are important for our readers and anything to do with money, basically. And that can be things as seemingly trivial as how much pocket money do you give your kids or what energy tariff you're supposed to be in, all the way up to what kind of ways should you be taking income for your retirement? How should you build a portfolio? what kind of EIS scheme you should be in, sophisticated tax planning. It's the whole remit. Basically, anything that we think is interesting for our readers, we'll write about it. Cool. Well, I'm a subscriber to the Sunday Times and a frequent reader. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation, actually, James. But before we get into it, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I'm an absolutely fanatical hockey player to the point that my body is starting to give up to me now midway in my mid-40s. But I coach kids as well. I love hockey. And I will rave about it to my heart's content. <laughs> Fantastic. And have you yet managed to write a money article that links to hockey? Oh, yes. Lots and lots of times. In fact, my reporters constantly moan about the fact that I'm always using hockey analogies when it comes to kind of managing a team of people. It's my David Brent trait, that is. <laughs> Brilliant. Have you been back on the hockey pitch since lockdown? Has it opened up a few weeks ago? I played on Saturday and I'm not standing up today. Two days later. Excellent. So James, in your sort of overview of your role, you mentioned some areas that are just so broad in terms of the kind of remit that you cover. How do you work out what you're covering and how do you see your role in terms of deciding what is interesting for your readers? Obviously, in financial services, there are flows to the year. You have budgets, you have the tax year. Those are kind of set piece events where it's important to have conversations with readers. The really difficult thing with those is making sure you talk about them at the right time. There's no good talking about tax returns on January the 25th, because it's too late to do anything about it then. The same with tax planning. Then, of course, what you also have is things that happen through the year, whether or not that's a pandemic or a stock market crash or somebody suddenly, like Barclay Card, suddenly slashing all of the credit limits for their people. You're driven by that. And at the same time, it's trying to listen to readers, by which I mean trying to cancel out the noise of things like social media, which are driven by largely financial services professionals. And trying to just make sure that we're discussing issues that we think are important at the moment. And that can be anything from having wider conversations about drawing an income or, I mean, our news conference this morning, I was talking to one of the reporters, Kate Palmer, about this issue that nobody's ever really managed to get their teeth into in terms of first-time buyers, a lot of them complaining about the fact that you can pay your rent, but a mortgage lender won't give you the same mortgage equivalent in rent. And we were just sitting there talking, well, nobody's really properly answered that question. 
And there's probably some good answers to it, usually to do with stress testing of affordability. But if people are still answering the question, well, let's try and address it and let's try and ask some sensible questions. And it's about balancing those kind of of the moment issues with a lot more kind of the fundamentals that like the four pillars of personal finance, I call the mortgage savings, pensions, investments, the core subjects and having a regular conversation with readers week after week after week, making sure that we keep coming back to the same philosophies at the heart of all of those, saving a little bit for a long time, building up a good deposit for a house, having that cash balance sitting there in a savings account to give you protection, but trying to just find sensible conversations that we can have with them to make sure that they're always thinking, have that in the back of their mind. Yeah, I mean, that balance, as you articulated it there, makes so much sense. I suppose that balance between those long-term sensible things, those four pillars that you talk about, which are sort of always true and always relevant, balancing that up against the day-to-day of what's kind of hot, what's grabbing people's attention, whether that's the Tesla or the GameStops or the Bitcoin sort of thing. And obviously, you have covered certainly some of those things, maybe all of those things in recent times. And I guess there's just a balance to be struck there in that conversation around what's long-term structurally important and what's people are care about right now? Yeah, it's about giving people the right information. I mean, I'll use equity release as a good example. I mean, I've been doing personal finance reporting for 20 years now. And 20 years ago, the view was very much you shouldn't write about equity release. It was a terrible, terrible product. People shouldn't be taking money out of their houses. Full stop. End of story. Don't write about it. But actually, increasingly over the years, I've changed my view that actually, if people are doing it, we should be writing about it. Because if people are doing something, I want them to do it right. If they want to buy GameStop shares, they can buy GameStop shares. But let's make sure that we are telling them the right way to do it, the best way to trade, try and get some of the emotion out of it and get them to think practically about their money. And also say to them, look, it's okay. If you're quite wealthy and you want to bet a thousand pounds on GameStop for a laugh, then knock yourself out. Let's let people have fun, but have a rational conversation with them at the same time. That's where I always try to find the balance in all of these things. And also trying to cut out the noise, cutting out the noise from social media. And I think this is something that a lot of personal finance journalists are guilty of. They listen too much to what's going on social media and don't think themselves independently, is this right or is this wrong? So what you've touched on there, I suppose, is the sort of responsibility that comes with being a financial journalist. So can you maybe just expand a bit on kind of how you see your role in the industry and things like, I think your bio on the Times website mentions you're a campaigner, sort of driving the industry forward. How do you see your role in that? I feel incredibly responsible for the way that we look after readers' money. What we're doing is we're trying to empower them with information. And there is an imbalance in the industry between the amount of information that the financial service professionals have and the amount of information that normal people have. And I see our role as trying to restore that balance and empower people to make better financial decisions for themselves. And a lot of the time, I mean, when we talk about campaigning, a lot of the time that is only trying to iron out bits of fairness that have been inbuilt over time. One of the key ones, this is when I was at Money Mail at the Daily Mail, was on child trust funds. It seemed absolutely illogical to me that you couldn't transfer your child trust fund into a junior ISA when this scheme had been set up. It's just one of those things that persisted. And so you try to even out the fairness for people and do that by putting human beings at the heart of it. Over time, so long as you can put normal people at the heart of your stories, it is so much more powerful than me writing a column ranting about something. Normal people's stories just highlight things that are unfair much better. 
But we do take huge responsibility for what we do. I think there's a temptation to think we just write stories and walk away from them. But quite often we come back to things over and over again. We have thousands and thousands of facts to check every single week in the stories. And we want to get things right for people. It doesn't always happen because people make mistakes sometimes. But we really, really put our readers at the heart of it. And that's what helps us, I think, try to be as responsible as possible. That responsibility is really interesting. Have you ever tried to estimate your sort of assets under readership, if you like? What sort of assets your readers have got? Oh, God, no, I haven't. But that's a really good point, actually. I mean... What is your readership, roughly? The subscriber base for the digital subscribers for the Sunday Times and the Times is about 320,000 people. Obviously, there's about 700,000 people that buy the Sunday Times. So that's, I mean, not every single one of those people will read the personal finance section, unfortunately. But when you've got thousands and tens of thousands of people clicking on to a story to read what you've written, I mean, we particularly take care when we're writing about stocks and shares and funds and investing, because we want to give people the information to be able to make their own investment decisions. But at the same time, you've got to be really careful about saying, we would never say you should definitely do this. We would always present it with the kind of, well, this is what people are talking about. And here's a few examples of what you could do. It's tricky, isn't it? Because I think we also often fall into the sort of challenge of you want to be as helpful as possible to whoever's reading your article or your advice or whatever. But you then feel you have to caveat what you write. But if you caveat it too much, you're not doing anything that's helpful at all. I mean, you use the word advice there. And I think that's a really good word to use because what I'm very resistant to is this idea that financial advisors own the word advice because advice can be anything. Advice is why don't you go and save a bit more money into your bank account so that you've got financial protection? Now, there's no financial advisor in the world that's going to turn around and tell you that they're impinging on their business model for that. But if you turn around and say, maybe you should think about opening a SIP and investing on your own, then financial advisors start getting all very, very territorial. But there was nothing wrong with giving people advice in the most general terms. And we can never address people's very specific terms. And if we ever get close to it, we make sure we don't. <laughs> but people want advice and guidance and tips and information, and they want to know what to do next when they've got this information. And that's where we try to point them in the right direction. Yeah, because there was that information out, I think you covered it from the, was it the FCA recently talking about where people go to for financial advice, I guess, information. And there was plenty of TikTok and friends and YouTube and all those sort of things being mentioned. So I suppose to sort of echo your previous point, people are going somewhere for it. So they may as well get something meaningful if they come. Is that sort of how you'd say That's it? exactly how I view it. There was some young man sitting in front of a webcam in Darlington telling everybody that he's made a thousand quid in the last 24 hours from Bitcoin. And here's how you can go about do it. Well, I would rather we tried to increase our social media presence and we could have a proper conversation with those same people and try to get them to make more sensible financial decisions with their money. And anybody in financial services knows that the moment that you start talking about profit is probably the moment that you're in the room with the charlatan because really what everybody should be talking about is outcomes and the direction of travel for your, what do you want? And I don't particularly like the wellness trend but actually the language of financial services is finally changing to reflect a more of a holistic lifestyle approach and i think that's really really important that we move away from the wristwatches golf clubs fast cars notion of financial services and more towards a well what do you want when do you want to retire 
What would you like to do? I mean, that's what the fire saving movement is all about. It's all about people achieving a set goal that they want to have. I mean, for right or for wrong, it's just about better lifestyle planning by using your savings more wisely. So you touched there just briefly on effectively some of the trends that you might have seen start to emerge and you're hoping to see continue. Can you maybe just reflect in your 20 years in financial journalism on the sort of trends that you've seen? In that 20 years, we've gone from a time where financial services companies were totally dominant in the market, where banks ruled the roost, where investment sales were only really done through tied advisors, through salesmen, to a point where we have slowly and surely unraveled the infrastructure to give power back to people. And what we've seen in the last 12 months in the pandemic is what we've seen across the board in lots of industries is an acceleration of trends. The pension freedoms were actually part of this. You can analyze the pension freedoms as much as you want in terms of the rights and wrongs, but really that was an issue of empowerment, giving people the power to make a decision about their retirement income in the way that they wanted to make it. And this is the point we're at now. This is what people trading on free trade is about. It's about an expression of power. It's about the ability to self-invest. That's why Vanguard is so popular. It has enthralled people because of the way that it gives you the power to control your financial services. This is a challenge for the industry that they need to get with it. I mean, this is why I'm always banging on about fund managers and pension funds and their lack of accountability, because you can see the direction of travel. I will probably be wrong and you can play this back to me in 10 years time, (laughs) but you can see the direction of travel. The direction of travel is towards openness, transparency, lower fee charging, giving people the right to make their own decisions. And the companies that resist that are the companies that are going to be left behind. I'm totally with you on that one, James. And I guess a world where we're talking about more individual empowerment in savings is in some ways a world where financial journalists are more relevant than ever, I would have thought, but also a time where journalism generally has been incredibly challenged, I would say, obviously from an external perspective. So how do you reconcile those two competing forces, I guess, never being more relevant in a world that's perhaps never been tougher for that medium? Ever since the last financial crisis, revenues across newspapers have been hit massively and that has caused the number of journalists employed in the sector to fall. It used to be the case that if you recruited to a national newspaper, you would take journalists who had done five years on local papers and then five years on trade papers and they had that brilliant mix of being brilliant journalists and financial know-how. Well, now you can't recruit like that. So you're bringing in more and more inexperienced people that you have to train up. I mean, my team is fantastic. And I'm very, very lucky that the way that our revenue model has changed over the time is that we have those subscribers who pay monthly. And that's the way that we are able to invest in journalism and try to think responsibly about how we do it. But the real threat, I think, sometimes comes from social media. It's that with the openness that comes across financial services, as journalists, we have opened ourselves up as well. And we have opened ourselves up to a lot and lot of criticism. I can't think of another profession where every single time you write something, imagine if every time you wrote a report, you put it out there and millions of people could turn around the next day and tell you what an idiot you are because you didn't write something in your report. I mean, this is it. We are faced with not only the financial services professionals that can discuss it at length and tell you when you're wrong and a thousand word article and get hung up on one sentence. And that's fine because sometimes they're right and we should listen. We have to listen to those. But at the same time, the world is also full of the criticism of the you never said us. 
I like to call them. (laughs) Those are the worst critics in the world. They are the terrible article because you never said this. And you're not writing about that issue. You're writing about something else. (laughs) But you have to fend those off all the time. And it's very, very difficult. I feel really, I'm very protective of new journalists coming into the industry because it is very, very, very emotionally hard to deal with. You never have a day off from people criticizing you every single day of the week. And it's a stressful industry. And you have to just take a deep breath sometimes and learn to take the rough with the smooth. What you've just described as well as sounded like an absolute emotional roller coaster, just, I guess, brings into the spotlight how much prep you need to do around every single article because you've got all these people reading it and critiquing it and that sort of thing, which makes it sound like it must be quite difficult to write an article about something that's happening quite quickly. And I guess interested in your thoughts on that, but also how you balance writing about structural long-term trends with writing about things that are the here and now that you'll be criticised if you don't write about because someone was opening the paper expecting to read about it. One of the things we try to do at the Times and the Sunday Times is not worry too much about breaking news. We do like to break stories. We do investigations to break exclusive stories and like to be at the forefront. But with daily incremental developments in stories, I'm not too bothered about it. The BBC can do that, to be quite honest with you. And it's a very, very competitive marketplace. (laughs) I would rather give people the final say, the big in-depth piece that looks at what's gone and tried to present both sides of the argument. And I think Times and Sunday Times readers are intelligent enough to be presented with both sides, a more nuanced argument. And we see it all the time, actually. I mean, the big pieces that we do on Saturdays and Sundays, the big, longer 2,000-word articles. I mean, we did a big LCP report at the weekend on pensions and final salary pensions. And it was one of our best-read pieces. I can see that we have a lot of data that we get, which tells us how many people read it, what type of subscriber read it. And people read that article. They sat there and they sat and read it for seven minutes all the way through and commented on it and delved into the detail. And it was because it was detailed. It was an issue they care about, retirement planning. It had fact after fact after fact all the way through it, not just from the LCP report, but from the information my writer David Byers went out and got to back it up. It had graphics that we had knew were going to be relevant for readers so that they could sit there and peruse them. And that's what we try to do every single week. The other piece that did really well at the weekend was a big piece that we wrote about whether or not you should move this great big shift in the stock market between growth and value. We found a way to try to write about it, to try to cut through the jargon of growth and value, but also at the same time, just give people enough information so they could weigh up what are the things I need to be thinking about here? What are fund managers doing? So that you've got all the way through, not packed with boring quotes of people saying blah, 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 but information that they can act on and use. And that was really, really well read as well. Fantastic. And I suppose it's great that you've got all the stats then to back up what your listeners actually do find interesting. And presumably that then informs the next thing you write. What did I say? Writers. Listeners. Listeners. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) We're leaving that in. That's not being cut. Data is absolutely key to everything that we do. I mean, that's one of the great things about being a digital publisher is that we have so much data. I can tell how subscribers are reading it. I can see if it's picked up by Google and how many people have come from there and how they're reading it. I can tell if younger people are reading it, if female readers are reading it, if non-subscribers are reading it better than subscribers are and why is that? And it helps us to be able to inform things. And it means that we can 
not worry so much. It's brilliant when you write a story and 100,000 people read it from start to finish and everybody loves it. Okay, that's the dream. Okay. But sometimes you'll have a story that is about something you think is important. I don't know, net pay pensions, for example, or something like that. And 5,000 people read it. And maybe a lot of subscribers only read it for a little bit, but it scores a five for female readers, which is our top benchmark score. And it's like, that's fine. That story has done its job. We know that low paid women are primarily affected by this issue. And if that story has been read from start to finish by most of the women that read that story, that story has done its job. Let's not worry that it's not the highest performing one in the section what we've done is we've given that group of readers what they want to read. And that helps it to inform our decision making as well. We don't edit by data, but we are informed by it. But that's fascinating, isn't it? That you can see it's such a granular level as well, because I can see what you mean. You're not aiming for everything to be a smash hit million readers kind of thing. But if it hits the demographic, it works. I'm interested to know how often is your, because you must obviously have hunches having been in the game for so long on what's going to do well and what's not going to do well. How often are you sort of surprised by stuff that you're not quite sure of that actually ends up performing really well? Every week. (laughs) (laughs) There is something every week. I mean, usually you have a pretty good idea about what's going to be hot and what's not. It's good because the question that it asks you is if something you've done something that's good, And you think, this is a really good story. I think this is going to do well. And it doesn't do well. That gives you the opportunity to go away and ask yourself why it didn't do so well. Did we just do it in a boring way? Was it a bit kind of one facty and you got the answer to your question in the first paragraph? Was there something that happened in the middle of the story that stopped people from reading and getting any further? I mean, we're constantly asking ourselves questions like that. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? To have that access to that sort of information or stuff you put out must be absolutely great. Okay, should we take a little bit of a pivot there? I mean, I'd love to get your take on, I can sense this might be a long answer, but what mistakes do you think get made again and again in investing that sort of wind you up? Overtrading, definitely. While I'm talking about the shift from growth to value, we're not necessarily talking about people selling out of Tesla and Facebook and everything today. We're talking about just some sensible decisions that people can make with their profits. But overtrading is definitely one of them. People worrying too much about short-term blips in the market. and That's probably the biggest one. I think the other thing is just not starting early enough is the biggest mistake people make. Just not having, I mean, this is why I've always been such a fan of auto-enrollment because we're not going to see it for 25 years, unfortunately. But those tiny little piddly sums of money that were saved by an 18 or a 21-year-old who would not have normally saved until they were 30 is going to be worth so much because compounding, doesn't matter how many cliches you stick out about (laughs) compounding, people don't realise the real effect of it. So you touched there on people not starting early enough. And I think earlier you mentioned an article about how much pocket money people give their kids. So you're also trying to strike a balance between actually your readership being parents and therefore encouraging the next generation to act appropriately as well. I mean, I'm not a great believer in financial education in schools. I think that is largely just kind of trying to fix something broken in schools that isn't there. And it's nothing that can't be solved with better maths lessons. Actually, what you need to teach is just responsibility. And actually, a better fight to fight would be with parents to stop them. It's all behavior driven, isn't it? I don't know if you're parents, but I'm a parent. And it's rather distressing seeing your kids just doing everything that you did. And, <laughs> and it becomes totally apparent that parental influence and peer influence is absolutely everything when it comes to children. So 
it's about trying to set good habits rather than having some of those kind of wishy-washy conversations about how you should all sit down at the dinner table and talk about money. Actually, it's habit-forming things, isn't it? It's like if you're sitting there talking about saving and you can see parental behavior is responsible, then the kids are likely to be more responsible. It's as simple as that. So then you're, I guess, you're encouraging your readers who are parents to encourage good behavior in their children, but you're also, I guess, yourself trying to encourage good behavior in your readership with those small lessons and the cliches about compound interest and all those sorts of things. Yeah, just habit forming, good habits. Everything is about good habits. It's like when you do hockey training. (laughs) 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 When you step onto a hockey field and you go training, you have somebody pass you the ball and you will control it and you will take a deep breath and then you will peel with the ball and then give your stick with your head up and you will do that over and over and over and over again until you get into a high pressure match situation and somebody passes you the ball and you've got the ball under control and you can find the space without even thinking about it and it's that repeat basics of spending and saving that you can build into your life so that you save a little bit you save a little bit you save a little bit you're thinking about it at the start and eventually when really tough times come you don't have to worry about the saving because you've already got it there behind you i mean i was always a great fan i mean nation my building society was years and years ahead of its time when it started talking about the safer tomorrow scheme which came from australia that was the first real bit of behavioral economics that we really saw over here that was about 15 years ago it never really took off. And now we're starting to talk about sidecar saving schemes, which is all exactly the same thing. It's just doing the basics well, thinking about it at the start so that it becomes instinct. And that's really interesting because actually when you started with your hockey analogy, which I really appreciated, it reminded me of, I think it's something like 10,000 hours to become a master in anything or something, which is to do with practice makes perfect and that sort of thing. I guess thinking about investing and good money management it doesn't feel like the sort of thing that you go out and say I'm going to become a master in this because it feels like it's that intangible thing that you kind of can't grasp and it's not the same as mastering a hockey hit is that the right word I mean you're talking about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours to perfect something well Matthew Syed who's a columnist for the Sunday Times who wrote a book called Bounce which is basically about how you become a top sports star He takes the idea even further forward and he says it's not just about the 10,000 hours, it's about accessibility to the right things. He was an Olympic table tennis player. He had the 10,000 hours training, but he also had access to a brother who played table tennis with him all the time, who challenged him, who had a table tennis table. He happened to have a good club down the road. So you need some of these things. Now, we're at a really good point now. Yes, we've had the savings problems before, but not only have we got the ability to have those 10,000 hours, but you've also got access to this stuff. You've got all of these investment platforms. We've got Vanguard. We've got cheaper, low-cost investment. We've got auto-enrolled savings. We've got savings providers that are willing to provide savings sidecars. We're getting to this place where people can start to build up these good habits, and it's not too much of a problem. And how do you measure whether your education is working for people? I have got no idea. (laughs) (laughs) With more people subscribing to the paper, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I mean. I don't think you can ever measure it. I think you can just keep talking about it and hoping for the best. It sounds like you're definitely an optimist about the ability to educate consumers in the financial space. Is that fair to say? I sort of find that some people take a pessimistic view, some people take an optimistic view. Is it right to pin you as a sort of optimist or more of a pragmatist, maybe? I'm more of a pragmatist, I think. But I do think that as a nation, we're more inclined to be conservative with a small c. And we are generally quite sensible And so we just need to give people the right environment for these things. 
the financial services industry and financial advisors have got to stop treating people like they can't possibly understand these things because they can understand these things. But we live in a world where people are constantly telling everyone that they can't. You've just got to help them a bit more. I mean, perhaps even labeling it as education is being a little bit pejorative, you might argue, or sometimes even financial literacy also gets thrown around as a term. Yeah, that's a great point. Taking another bit of a pivot there, what would you change if you ran the investment and fund management industry? I think I'd have fewer funds for starters, and I would have far more accountability within the industry. I would make sure that the remit of the fund managers was very, very clear and that you could see every single month whether or not your fund manager was hitting his remit. I think in this world of great ethical ESG transformation, fund managers should be upfront right from the start about how they're using your money. It's very difficult to have a world where you tell your fund manager how to vote, but at the very least, you are even trusted your savings to these people and they should be accountable for that. And I think I would also just like fund managers to remember that it's our money that they're investing. It's not their money, it's our money. Even if it's institutional money, it's our money. I have to air the answer you gave off air though, James, <laughs> when we were <laughs> giving you the heads up, we were going to ask you this question. And the answer was, I do run the industry, which <laughs> I think there is some truth in that though, isn't there? Because actually, as you said, it's our money and you're influencing how people think about their money and making sure that they act appropriately. And that does change the industry. It sounds very arrogant, but I do think that personal finance editors have to be the advocates for our readers. I'm joking, of course, but at the same time, I'm trying to be the representative for what I think is the best for our readers. And it's not going to be the best for all of our readers, but I really, really want to try to represent them as much as possible, which is why sometimes I get quite cross when I see the industry being intransigent about it. Picking up on something that's come out of a couple of themes you mentioned, James, I guess it's clear that you as journalists are subject to a hugely high level of accountability and transparency. Like you say, the Twitter comments, the comments section after your articles and stuff. One can't help but draw a little bit of contrast with how a lot of the investing industry operates, I suppose. I don't know how many fund managers see hundreds of comments after they have a bad day sort of thing or after every day's performance. I mean, am I putting two and two together there and getting five? Or would you agree with that sort of characterization of the difference there in terms of accountability? Yes, I think so. I mean, how many fund managers have actually met anybody that they were investing their money for? I made a point in my column at the weekend about Manchester United. Now, Nick Train, one of our best fund managers, holds shares in Manchester United. So, okay, that was a huge issue last week. And you can take whatever view you want on it. But it doesn't matter what view you have, because here is a man who has got millions of pounds of our money and is investing it in something. So how does Nick Train feel about this great issue and the fact that the deputy chairman of this institution that he invests in has quit? That's an important issue. If I'm investing in him, how does he feel? Well, they won't tell us. So we asked twice. They won't tell us. And I'm an investor in that fund as well. I'm not just writing as an editor. I'm an investor in that fund. How does he? Well, we don't know. Is he going to mention it on the fund fact sheet? Well, we've got no idea. Or in any report. These are the accountability issues that are really, really important. And too much of the time, it looks like things are solved by backroom meetings. And that's just Manchester United. But what about when we have big companies that are taken over? What about when Arm Holdings was taken over or Imagination Technologies or GKN or any of these people who are actually employing thousands of people in the centres of our communities? What are the fund managers doing on these issues? Quite a lot of the time, 
they're not voting. James, we're running short of time, but one thing I was interested to hear from you is effectively whether you practice what you preach. So you've clearly got some really, really strong views about appropriate ways to think about money management and actions to take and that sort of thing. You just mentioned you're a personal investor in the Lindsay Train Fund. So do you put all of this into action? I think I'm probably guilty of not really practicing everything I preach when I think about investing. I try to as much as possible, but not always. I, frankly, and this is where it informs the kind of conversations we can have with readers is that I just don't have enough time. <laughs> and I'm conscious of that also, that it takes a lot of time for people to do this stuff, which is why you can see platforms like eToro and Free Trade doing well because they're so easy to use. But yes, I invest myself. I've got company pension. I pay as much as I can into. And we save for the kids. Try to make sensible, frugal decisions about things. You don't always make the right decision. I hold BlackRock Gold and General Fund for about 15 years and I'm still not in profit on it. <laughs> I bought precisely at the wrong moment, but that informs you. I bought gold right at the peak and it's never made enough money. And you learn from that. You learn that you shouldn't buy just because everyone was talking about something. Great advice. So James, just as we're starting to wrap up now, what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this episode? Have faith in good habits when it comes to saving and investing. Don't try to overcomplicate things. If you get the basics right, if you concentrate on the basics, then everything else will follow from that. Fantastic. Very well said. James, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think income. <laughs> I really do. I think the pension freedoms have really shown how, and people hitting the pension freedoms and doing it right, and are taking income from their pension funds without eroding too much of their capital, have really shown the huge misunderstood benefits of income and actually just reinvesting your income when you're going to retirement. I mean, I think that is so underappreciated. I mean, there are lots and lots of other bits and pieces, but actually just the power of the dividend and what it can bring you are huge to anyone saving for retirement. Really interesting angle. And James, I'm sort of asking this last question with a little bit of a smile on my face for obvious reasons, but any thoughts for where listeners could get some interesting reading on these sort of areas? <laughs> well, it depends how advanced <laughs> they are. I think they should read all the personal finance press. Read us, but read The Telegraph, read FT Money, read Money Mail, which is a brilliant campaigning newspaper than the Daily Mail. Read Money Saving Expert, because you can see the thousand, what normal people are talking about. Read The Guardian, because they're campaigning on different issues to the ones that the Times readers are interested in. They are all of these things together. Moneybox on BBC is absolutely wonderful radio program. It's all about just consuming as much as you possibly can to make sure that you're getting all the different opinions that you can. And then you can make a sensible decision for yourself. Fantastic. What a great note to end on. Yeah, indeed. James, it's been a brilliant conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. That's it from us this week. But please join us again next week for another episode. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.